Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Sufert. My guest today is Taylor Holiday, who is the founder and CEO of the Common Thread Collective, a growth agency for e-commerce brands. Taylor is also the chairman of 4x400, which is an e-commerce brand holding company, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Statless.io, a data analytics platform for e-commerce brands. Very busy man. Before entering the exciting world of performance marketing, Taylor was a professional athlete and played baseball for the New York Yankees. In this podcast, Taylor and I speak about the hardship facing e-commerce and D2C advertisers at the moment. We discuss how big of a role ATT has played versus inflation in the digital advertising maelstrom to date, whether that is changing, why the transition to pre-COVID purchasing norms has been so difficult for e-commerce advertisers to weather, and the e-commerce debt disaster that is soon to play out in the market. I very much enjoyed this conversation with Taylor, and I encourage everyone listening to subscribe to the weekly Common Thread newsletter, which is always chock full of interesting performance data related to digital marketing channels. Thanks for listening, and I bring you a conversation with Taylor Holiday. Taylor, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. What's up, buddy? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well, Ben. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. I've actually been meaning to invite you on the podcast for some time. I reference your data all the time in conversation. Common Thread, for those who don't know, publishes a a weekly newsletter that is just chock full of really helpful kind of performance data across your portfolio of clients that I think has sort of illuminated this digital advertising story really well for the last year or so, or the last, you know, 18 months of kind of this, this maelstrom that we're in the midst of. So thank you for doing that. It's always really a, a treat to see the newsletter land Excellent. in my inbox. And I'm excited to have you on. So the, the genesis of this specific conversation, which we managed to organize very quickly, and I, I appreciate your flexibility, was sort of a data dump this weekend. So I was flying from Helsinki to the US. So I was just kind of stuck in my seat. And a company called Triple Whale released some information about what they're seeing across their client portfolio. And I think, you know, I read the data and the data was kind of presented in the triple whale. People are great. I also love catching their insights on Twitter. But, you know, the data they presented was sort of, to my mind, not very optimistic. It was actually like a very, very sort of troubling. I parsed out a very troubling signal from the data that they presented, which kind of contrasted with the way it was presented, which was more as like, uh, hey, here's some good news. Or actually, I think the wording that was used was like, things aren't that bad. Yeah, my a little squirrely, a little squirrely, right. I think was the quote. Yeah, exactly. And my interpretation was, wait a minute, this is actually much worse than maybe I would have even guessed. And I think you came to the same conclusion and we both posted like roughly the same interpretation. Um, and so that was the genesis of this conversation. But so I've just introduced you in the introduction of the podcast. Why don't you quickly just kind of give some background on yourself in, in your own words? Yeah, thanks, Eric. And likewise, been a big fan of yours. I think you have been on the forefront of the battle lines against trying to bring clarity and transparency to what's been going on with the iOS issues. So I appreciate your work there a ton. And your tweets get shared a ton in our internal Slack. But e-commerce, our Common Thread Collectives, we call ourselves an e-commerce growth agency. We've been at this for about 12 years now, helping consumer product e-commerce brands grow and hopefully grow profitably, which is a lot of our focus. We came out of being brand builders. So we like to say we're operators masquerading as marketers. We built our own brands previously and are still owning and operating our own e-commerce brands today. And so a lot of what we do is informed from those journeys, which when you've had to manage the cash that you're spending, it just gives you a different perspective on the way that you spend it. And so I think we bring a lot of that fiscal responsibility and connection between finance and marketing to bear. We also spend a lot of time on data. We believe that the primary value proposition an agency has 
is context. When you hire an agency, you're supposed to be hiring them for everything they've ever learned, deployed through each individual. And the only way to do that is to really create a centralized brain for the organization. And so we've done that through our data platform, Statless.io. It sort of forms our sort of aggregate view of the world and a lot of our strategies and context. So that's us. And I think you know where I'm going with this, but if I didn't bring up the fact that you used to play for the New York Yankees, and I yeah, guess uh, yeah. my question there is, um, you know, why'd you screw around doing that instead of jumping straight into performance marketing? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, uh, it's performance of a different kind, but yeah. I will say that baseball is where I get my roots in data analysis because it is a very data-rich sport. And uh, me and my brother, if you go back to when we were little kids, we have these binders full of imaginary play where we would play wiffle ball in the backyards, create all these pretend teams and track every imaginary game we played in data format. And so it's always been part of, I love the objectivity of it. I love the feedback of it. And so I think transitioning out of that into performance marketing was actually oddly rewarding to a similar part of my brain. Oh, that's great. What position did you play? They tried to hide me on defense, Eric. I could hit and run, but I played all over the diamond on defense. So that was definitely not my strong suit. Well, I mean, I I ask as if I know anything about baseball. But, um, let's just jump right in. So what did you see in the e-commerce market in Q3? What are you seeing now in Q4? Just to kind of level set going into Black Friday. So we're recording this on Monday, the 21st Black Friday is coming up. What are you seeing now in Q4? What did you see in Q3? Just to level set. Yeah. So for us, Q3 was easily the hardest quarter of the year. We saw July really being the month where things really got squirrely, to borrow this terminology that we're now applying to disastrous uh, as a synonym for disastrous. But um, (laughs) that was the hardest time of year for us was coming out of Q3. We did some work around looking at the relationship between the consumer confidence index and marketing efficiency. And really, when inflation narratives were peaking, you had the iOS stuff continuing to wreak havoc. Q3 was really hard. We're starting to see better recovery actually in Q4. We're starting to see a little bit more stability and things working better over the last couple of months. We published our data today alongside the triple whale data. So the triple whale data you referenced earlier came out and I think they had, you know, spend up 56% and revenue down 26%, up 56, down 22, which is like, you know, a net disaster. And so we looked at it and our data is a lot more optimistic, a much smaller sample for sure. I think there are about 6,500 stores and ours is about 230, I think in reference here. But we had, let me make sure that I'm not going to state the exact numbers. We had store revenue up 5% year over year in Q4 and spend up about 2%. So actually improved efficiency about flat to year over year up 5%, which is pretty consistent for the annual numbers as well with Q3 being the worst of all the quarters. Got it. Okay. And just to clarify, I mean, I'm not trying to impugn. I really like the Triple Whale company. They make amazing, by the way, like uh, marketing material. They, I don't know if you've seen their commercial. It's very, <laughs> it's very funny. I, I like the team. I'm always a, an enthusiastic consumer of their data. This conversation just kind of was catalyzed by that. But I'm not. I don't mean to impugn or question the data that they release at all. And I believe it's very credible. I think it was just more the interpretation that we both shared was the reason yeah. for having the call. Okay, so you're seeing Q4 about flat year over year, but sequentially up from Q3. What do you think accounts for that? Well, so I I think that people are in this sort of ongoing battle, right? Which is there is a complexity related to, I would say, primarily the core growth lever of e-commerce faltering, which is Facebook advertising, right? So that is a battle that began back in May of 2021. And if you look at sort of, you mentioned our data index that we track, like I'm looking at a graph right now that basically is year over year Facebook ROAS, and it just falls off a cliff in May of 2021 and basically doesn't recover to the tune of about a 30% decline 
since that moment forward. And for a lot of businesses, that's the difference between profit and no profit, right? Like not Mm -hmm. many businesses can sustain a 30% reduction in their marketing efficiency. And so I think that's been an ongoing battle. And then I think that there are additional macroeconomic environments that are contributing to it as well. So when those things sort of combine to each other, you end up in positions that are really, really difficult. Then you layer on some of the stuff that I outlined in my thread, which are you have people who are sitting on excess inventory because they planned for growth rates that were going to match 2020 and 2021. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a balance sheet problem, which creates a cash problem. And so now you've got all these things compiling together to force your hand towards sets of behaviors that can be counterproductive, which includes attempting to continue to press on the spend throttle in ways that maybe are not serving your business. Okay. There's so much there that I want to unpack. Let's just sort of hover over that 30% ROAS deterioration really quickly, because I think that's one thing that's kind of very misunderstood. I mean, e-com in particular, it's so sensitive to ROAS. And one of the sort of threads of resistance that I came up against early on when I was kind of screaming from the rooftops about how disastrous ATT was going to be was people saying, well, look, people just shift their spend away from Facebook. They don't need Facebook. They'll shift. <laughs> and that's just, that's not how performance advertising budgets are set, right? I mean, performance advertising is an exercise in exploitation. You find a channel, you exploit it to the greatest possible extent, sort of relative to some ROAS standard, ROAS meaning return on ad spend. And then you move on. Then you move on to the next channel and you exploit that that's to right. the greatest possible. Because the thing is, if you have a performance marketing machine that works, that's a money printer. Why wouldn't you exploit the channel to the greatest possible extent? That's a money machine. There's nowhere else that you could deploy X millions of dollars in a month and get a 10% return in 90 days or whatever, 180 days. There's almost no other place where you could do that. And the compounding that you get from that just can can, can create a very, very sort of like lucrative, attractive business. Talk to me about that. Why is that so challenging for when you lose ROAS, why is that so challenging, especially given like the thin margins that a lot of these businesses operate against? Why is that so challenging for performance marketing teams in e-com? Yeah. So there's, there's two things that you're hitting on. One is that people don't appreciate that Facebook is the greatest marketing engine ever created. And the idea that you're just going to go subsidize that in an alternative channel is just not reality. Because to your exact point, if there was another channel that had the potential to produce incremental profitable dollars, you would have been taking them already. Like exactly. this market is very efficient. If TikTok was this massive ROAS generating machine, we'd all be spending there independent right. of whatever's occurring with Facebook. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that people don't realize. Like the Apple privacy restrictions are an effect on every app in the app store. This is not a Facebook issue. Mm-hmm. TikTok and Pinterest and Snapchat and Twitter are all affected in the exact same way. You had Facebook who already had a marginal ability to produce better marginal ROAS across the board. Now you deplete the entire system in the same way that there isn't this place to just go subsidize those dollars. That doesn't exist. That's not real. And so it can't happen. So what happens is that means that top line revenue and total dollars are just coming down for these businesses. And some of them do not have the operating margin to offset that kind of decline in marginal revenue. So that's either because they have OPEX they have to cover that's probably bloated given the Mm -hmm you know, the massive growth over the last two years, or they have debt obligations, which is a huge underlying factor in our industry as well. So this idea that you just move the dollars somewhere else is not a reality in this world. I mean, I feel like every, we're going back and forth and every single time, we're never going to move on in my list of questions because I think there's just so much interesting (laughs) stuff that's getting kind of ping-ponged and and volleyed back and forth. But okay, so I want to get to the debt in a second, but let's let's put that aside because I think that's easily the whole conversation. Another misconception that I 
you know, butted heads with was like, well, okay, this is, this hurts app advertisers, but it doesn't hurt the web. And it's like, no, that was the initial understanding when Apple published like the sort of initial at WWDC 2020, they positioned this, like it was only like an app install related policy. And what was clarified later, and it was clarified by Facebook in like December of 2020 was that no, this is a broad policy that applies to any advertising that takes place in a mobile app, whether that ad leads to a website or a mobile app, another mobile app, right? right? So that's app install campaigns and web campaigns, which means e-com retail. That misconception kind of persisted even after Facebook clarified it because they did kind of dump that. They dumped it right before Christmas, or I think it maybe was in between Christmas and New Year's. I mean, this was like you know how people release news on a Friday if they want to bury it? Yeah, exactly. Like they released exactly. it on like a Friday between you know Christmas and New Year's. I, I don't remember the exact timing, but I remember yeah. I was staying up late. I was in Europe. I was staying up late and it was like around Christmas time. So that meant, okay, well, then this applies to all advertising in mobile. And another misconception is, you know, mobile advertising is like, you know, kind of one segment of the digital ad space. And then desktop advertising is another segment. And yes, that's true. But mobile advertising is far bigger at this point. Facebook's ad revenue is 95% mobile. The majority of digital ad spend runs through a mobile app. And that means the majority of digital ad spend was regulated by ATT. And that's why this was such a disaster and has been and continues to be a year after the initial introduction. And maybe a little bit later, we can talk about why it's still a disaster a year later. But I want to kind of move on to one more point that you made. And then uh, we'll get to the debt. So you talked about excess inventory, and I think that's a really interesting point. I have been banging on this drum for the last couple of months, which is sort of promoting a counter narrative, which is that actually ATT is a factor in the deterioration we've seen in in performance as well as macro. I I don't believe that macro plays no role. Of course it does. The inflation number is what it is. I'm not going to dispute that. Of course it plays a role. But if you'd followed like the earnings the last two quarters, especially the social media companies sort of explained performance, they didn't even mention ATT. I mean, Facebook did to some extent, but like really what they were trying to highlight was macro factors. And, and the point that I was trying to, I've been trying to make is like, no, ATT explains a lot of this. Not all of it. Of course, macro plays a role. It explains a lot. Now, I, I'm starting to believe that in Q4, macro plays a bigger role than it previously had. But what I was trying to draw attention to is the fact that you know these companies are trying to downplay the role that ATT was playing, and they're trying to right. blame it all on macro. And my That's right. hypothesis was the reason for that is well, you know, the macro follows a business cycle. You know, we've got peaks and valleys. We're in a valley. We'll hit a peak at some other point in time. This is ephemeral. This will pass. ATT permanent structural, and that's why they don't want to explain the degradation as being the result of ATT. Right. So that's been my narrative, but. And so I've been following not just the tech earnings, but also like the retail earnings, because I think that would help explain some of that, right? And so what we saw in Q3 was Target saw a meaningful decrease in gross margin. And what they explained that as being the result of was excess inventory that they had to like dramatically discount to just get it off the shelves. And that checks, right? I mean, that makes sense. They also said they had like $400 million write-off in like some kind of like orchestrated criminal robbery ring or something, which, you know, that's that's very sad. (laughs) The thing is like, Ross, the clothing retailer beat, Foot Locker beat, Walmart beat, Gap beat, right? I mean, so it's not all retail. And and so talk to me a little bit about the, the inventory overhang, because that's a striking difference between the e-com side of the market and the, just the digital goods side of the market, you know, like promoting apps, promoting software. That's right. So we have this sort of perfect whiplash, right? Where 2020 and 2021, what you have is 
everyone is wrong in their forecast, but they're wrong to the upside, right? Like there's all this excess demand that suddenly is built up when COVID happens and e-com's the only game in town. So everybody has this explosive growth rate in 2020 and 2021. But as they try and satiate that demand with product, they have a problem is that supply chain is clogged. Right. If you go back to the narrative in 2021, we've got the pictures of all the containers stuck offshore in Long Beach, things that you can't even get product, the delays are forever, product costs are through the roof, you know, the inventory costs. And so it's like everybody's attempting to order a ton of inventory because their lead times went up a bunch. They think they have all this extra demand. And suddenly both those things get sucked out of the system. So you have this perfect whiplash where they buy inventory on this longer lead time than normal, which is risky generally. They have anticipated demand that's on this curve that is different than every other year before it at a greater growth rate. They make these POs, then all of a sudden the demand gets sucked out of the system, starting with iOS, following into the recession. So they overestimated demand and they ordered more inventory than normal because the lead times were longer. And so all of a sudden, their balance sheets are stock full of inventory. And so what the additional problem for online businesses is we have a number of businesses that have showed up saying that they received RTVs, returned to vendors from major retailers saying, that PO that I placed, we don't need it anymore. We don't even have, and it's not necessarily even because your product isn't selling. It's that we literally don't have room in our warehouse for your product. And so we have a customer right now that's like, their business is like 80% retail. And all of a sudden, their giant retailers cut their orders and say, now we don't need this product. And now they have to figure out some way to move this inventory. And so whether that's you know just excess product for their own e-com channel or retailers pulling out, the balance sheets are stuffed right now. And you combine that, that's a liquidity crisis, right? Which is fine. And this will lead us into the debt conversation. If capital is readily available, you can solve for a liquidity crisis. But when you combine that with dried up capital, now all of a sudden, all this inventory financing or sort of stopgap financing is either way more expensive or fundamentally unavailable. And now the only way to get cash is to liquidate this product at prices much, much lower than you wish you would be able to. Right. And I think that is a perfect segue into the debt topic, right? So you spoke in your Twitter thread yesterday, which I'll link to about bad debt, right? And I think this topic has gone completely, I mean, I would say underreported, but it's it's been unreported. I mean, I, I've never seen anyone talk about this. And there's actually a, a very fascinating dynamic within e-com, a little bit in the app side too, but much more so in e-com, I think. So walk the audience through the market for debt for e-com advertisers. What is the history of these credit facilities for e-com advertisers? Yep. How are they used by e-com and D2C advertisers? And what is the kind of current situation with this debt that they're all kind of carrying? Yeah. So, you know, in a traditional business, right, you've got banks that are lending almost exclusively on historical business performance. So as you have all of this influx of new e-com businesses over the last seven years, none of them have historical financials to go get traditional bank debt. And so as there's this need that arises for capital to fuel growth, because e-commerce is very cash intensive, you have to buy inventory, the payback periods on your cash conversion cycles can be long, it's cash intensive. You combine that market need with a cost of capital that basically goes to zero, right? Interest rates get incredibly low. And what gets built on top, if you go to like to all the way to the source, so if like the Fed interest rates are basically zero, bank interest rates are basically zero, what gets built on top of that is what I would call like lending arbitrage, which are these people that say, okay, if I can get capital at 1%, if I can lend it to you at 10%, I can make a bunch of money. And what they're willing to do in those scenarios is they're willing to push the risk profile 
way out on who they're willing to lend money to. So you had all these people, the ClearCo's and Wayflyers and Parker and even Shopify got into it, PayPal got into it. All these providers started lending on all these algorithmic risk assessments that had to do with your media performance and projected future revenues. And so the sort of traditional bank assessment on your trailing 12-month EBITDA was out the window and they created these new fancy ways of modeling your future revenue based on your ad performance. And what they did and why this hasn't been a story yet, I believe, is because the default rates are still low. And here's why. is because the debt is set up that they take the money right out of your off the top. It comes into Shopify, it goes to the lender, okay? So they're really in position one in a debt stack. They are getting the first money out. So the only way that you'll default is if you go broke. <laughs> and the way that the terms are actually set up in many cases is that you uh, the rate actually goes up the faster you pay them back because it's not amortized annually. It's like, we'll lend you this much money. And whenever you pay it, you owe us this fixed rate on the money. And whenever it's paid back, it's paid back. And so what entrepreneurs don't understand is that the faster you scale your revenue, the faster you're paying it back, the more expensive the money on an annual basis actually becomes. And then what happened was that there's all these people who took an initial loan at a fairly conservative rate. And then as their business started to deteriorate, they would go to the next lender and get a slightly worse rate. And then the next lender and get a slightly worse rate. And all the while, they would play this game where they run their ads, take the cash, pay the lender, take the cash, pay the lender, take a worse loan, take a worse loan. And now all of a sudden, that game stopped because there's no next lender. There's no more money that they can get anymore. And so now businesses are in crisis. And if you go into these smaller e-commerce businesses, the debt stack of all of these providers is like so immensely prevalent and they're in a little bit of trouble, <laughs> all of them. That was a great explanation. Thanks. It's funny because I was, you know, so I was on this flight right yesterday. It was, it was a long flight. So it was Helsinki to, to uh, Texas. So I was doom scrolling Twitter with my Netflix window kind of minimized up at the top of my phone. And I was watching that movie, Margin Call. I don't know if you've seen that. Great movie. Very underrated movie. And there's this great scene. I don't remember the actor's name, but it's basically the boss of this bank. So basically, it's about a bank in 2008 that kind of discovers right before everyone else that they're sitting on basically when they bad, would... The bad uh, mortgages? Is that yeah. So, so you're right. So they securitize the mortgages. But when they did that, they had to sit on the books for a while while they packaged them up and put them in tranches. And so they realized that like, you know, their models always assumed like some certain level of default, right? And basically they had tested those levels or exceeded those levels like six days out of the last two weeks or whatever they realized. And uh, the market was deteriorating and they had to get them off the books ASAP because just on that book, on the, this, the MBS book, if the default rates increased by like some 20%, you know, they were so levered up that the loss would be more than the market cap of this 107-year-old bank, right? And so anyway, they, they, you know, they fly everyone in to have this emergency meeting and the CEO of the bank is saying, you know what, uh, I get paid, I don't get paid to do anything else, but to understand when the music's gonna stop. And right now I don't hear any music and like talking about like this game of musical chairs. And so it sounds like we're in that kind of situation and which is wild yeah. because no one, is talking about this, but there are these credit facilities that basically arose as a function of zero interest rates, right? We That's can right. get credit basically for free. We can get cash for free, not for free, but some you know nominal interest rate. We'll lend it to you. We get uh, superior rights on your cash flows as a result. 
And, you know, we can kind of model the payback and the default rates for your cohorts, right? So they were lending against the cohort progression, essentially, right? That's so right. what's exactly. happened? The models have broken. They're the all payback, wrong. They're all the wrong. Payback, the payback models don't work anymore. Now, the e-com advertisers are probably flexible enough to react to that, but the pricing mechanisms at these credit facilities are not, right? That's right. And this always seemed like it was going to be a disaster going into ATT because what did you have to do going into ATT as any kind of performance advertiser? You had to re-rate your model. You had to tear it down and start it from zero and look at yep. the progression of cohort monetization with brand new eyes. And these lenders, I don't think we're equipped to do that. The, again, no. this is not, none of these grew out of like big performance marketing organizations. There were finance people that were like, look, we've got That's historical right. models of payback and we can get money for free. That's what That's these right. businesses are. And the problem is they're all non-recourse. Like these people have these, these lenders have no recourse. And so the other thing that's happening is they're just getting pushed out. Now, some of the bigger ones, the PayPal and Shopify, they actually have a little bit more recourse because they'll withhold your funds, right? But the e-com stack of specific lenders, like they have very little thing that they can do. And so what's happening is like, they're all probably in a lot of trouble, candidly. Like I don't see how they possibly get made right on a lot of this stuff. And there's just, you're seeing it. I think the, you know, the biggest one was Birchbox, right? This couple of weeks ago, you're seeing this where it's like, so the narrative is we're all trying to get financing and it's because the money's due and there's no next money, right? And right. so a little bit of what we're seeing in that FTX universe for all these things of people trying to go get someone to refinance these things, it's not going to happen. And it's all going to get flushed out because there's just no way that those models to your exact point, they don't work anymore. You can't right. have a cost of capital that high with CAC this high and make any money. Right. How big of a player was FTX in the advertising market? I mean, they were spending a lot of money oh on God, ads. Right. Oh, totally. Like enormous, right? They had naming rights to yeah. uh, you know, the Miami <laughs> Heat arena, right? They had yeah. so so much of that stuff. Yes, all of that propped up so much of this market, right? Well, not just, I mean, FTX was, was a big individual advertiser, but the whole crypto space. Totally. I mean, they were crypto blowing lots of money, like, yeah. Yeah, all of it. It's wild. Okay, so the debt stuff is worrying, right? Because I it think is. you know you've got a situation that was already bad, and there's probably like a short-term reckoning to come with that. To your point, like you've got the debt stack, and you've got a bunch of people that are just going to have their hands out. And you know, my That's sense right. is part of the reason is you know a lot of these companies just attempted to dump their inventory was like we've got to pay this debt back. That's exactly um, we right. We got to get it off our, our balance sheet. I, so my sense is like, we've got something happening in the short term. I don't know if that's Q4, Q1 or whatever, but that is going to be like the exacerbated result of all of that lending and borrowing against kind of pre-ATT, pre-macro norms, right? That just couldn't be modeled into the lending algorithm. Yeah. And I think the other shoe to drop. So I think everyone's trying to get to Q4. Like so many people are trying to get to this moment because they're real, they realize they're most cash in this moment. And so it's a lot of it was yeah. survival to this next, you know, few weeks right. to try and get through it. But the other shoe to drop is on the consumer side. I think that I would be shocked if there isn't a similar issue happening with all the buy now pay later mechanisms, right? Sure. Which is another big part of our e-commerce world, which is another part of like a revenue deterioration is that if you think about the percentage of your revenue that went to afterpay and all these things that all that does is the whole value proposition to the consumer was like, this is a 0% interest loan to you right. to buy this product. And now that's just going to deteriorate the margin from the brand a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. 
But the customer is also then making buying decisions on the idea that that capital is free, right? Yeah. Now, that assumes a certain earning rate or power going forward for yourself too. And so there's this, that's another part of this is like, what is really happening on the consumer credit side? And what is the sustainability of that going forward? Because if that falls off at all, if the demand really does decline, then now you're going to see a total bloodbath. Because if it, the only way these e-commerce brands survive is if they can continue to produce demand that allows them to service these things, then they have some chance to refi and figure it out and spread it out and reduce staff and cut costs and get through it. But if the demand drops, there's just nothing you can do. Right. I was banging this drum and something that I'm, I don't know, like perennially prone to do is to try to make the most nuanced point and then, you know, die on that hill, which is like, doesn't endear me to a lot of people. But, and people ask me, why? What's the point? Why are you trying to draw this distinction between ATT and e- and macro, who cares? What difference does it make? It's all packaged together, plus the COVID right, opening, no, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've said repeatedly, it is those three things. I never said it was pure ATT. I always said ATT, it was inflation, right? Which is basically just is uh, purchasing power destruction, right? That's what it is. And it was COVID overhang, which, you know, inventory pileup is, is part of that, right? And so I always said it was those three, those three things. And I was trying to sort of like demarcate the pain incurred by each and draw boundaries around people are like, why? What's the point? What difference does it make? It's all one big amorphous pile of pain. Even if you could prove it out, what good would that do? And my response to that was, because if I'm right, and if it is mostly ATT and the macro stuff is just inflation, and we do enter a recessionary economy, there's another shoe to drop, right? If demand deteriorates, there's another shoe to drop. And so it matters. It matters to acknowledge that right now because things could get so much worse with that. And I don't know. I mean, who's, I'm not a macroeconomist. I don't know when that happens. Maybe it's Q4. Maybe it's Q1. I think it's probably happening to a greater extent now than it was in Q3. And maybe Q1 is, is really like the flashpoint. But, but nonetheless, it matters because if that happens, there's another headwind. There's another sort of frictional component to That's this right. mess. If you conflate them and you lump them all together, then you think they move back up together. But the ATT thing, what it does and why you're so right about this is because that calls into question the fundamental underlying business premise of so many of these businesses and as they're currently structured, independent of the macro environment. Right. The question is like, could you survive in a good time if your paid CAC suddenly deteriorated 30%? And the answer is no for a lot of these businesses. Now you combine that with additional head uh, headwinds and you have no shot. And so it is really important to sort out each of the individual factors to try and figure out which ones are going to improve in the future. Right. And right now there's very little indication that any of the efficiency that used to exist in the previous world is coming back. And so the kinds of businesses that are going to win, they're going to be structured and built very differently. Oh man, that's such a, we could just talk about that all day. Okay. Let's talk about channel mix. So how have you seen the advertising channel mix change? Let's call it in the last year. Have ad advertisers been able to successfully onboard new incremental spend with kind of like underexplored or unexplored channels and where others have declined or, or what are they trying to do? Are they just trying to salvage the existing channels? What yeah. have you seen there? What I'll say is that there's a desperation to try new things that there's never been before. So there is a lot of dollars going into attempting to create diversification because everyone feels like is very cognizant now of their single channel risk that exists in their business, but their ability to actually subsidize it and find another profitable channel has not occurred. Maybe in edge cases, for sure, you'll read here a case study about YouTube or TikTok or somebody winning on Snapchat. 
But in aggregate, those channels are not working. And they are not offsetting the demand in Facebook. The one channel where I would say there is increased volume at a level that's been meaningful is search, is shopping and Pmax. And this is why I think Google was really smart to move in the way that they did with that product. That said, Google always suffers from the reality that it exists post-demand, meaning it is a demand capture tool, not a demand creation tool. So you can't just go get more volume of search. That's not how it works. It's volume constrained. And so it, it doesn't actually allow, you can't just take all your Facebook dollars and put them into Google even if you wanted to, it's not even available to you in that way. And so people are being, I would say, smarter and really making sure they're maximizing every available dollar in Google. And we've seen the budgets go up a little bit there, but nothing that would offset any of the decline or impact that they would see in Facebook as their primary channel. That is such an important point. And it's one that just people don't grok. It's like there is some finite amount of searches for whatever keyword. That's right. That exists right. on today, right? And it's probably yes. forecastable through the end of the week. Now, what could you do? You could go invest in a bunch of top of the funnel brand advertising to drive more keyword searches. And then you say, yep. hey, wait a second, I spent all this money on TV ads and my Google campaigns got better. Well, no, they did. Right. Well, I mean, they it looks like they did. It's the illusion of getting better because you drove a lot more people into the top of the funnel to search for your thing. And they would That's have right. ended up on your website anyway, unless you precipitated a lot of competition for those keywords and you couldn't compete there. It's basically just like a drag on your top of the funnel and brand recognition. It's, it's essentially like a tax on brand recognition. And then the other important point here is that the problem with any search environment where it's volume constrained is that eventually all the profits get competed down to zero. So what happens on your branded terminology is if you have retailers with excess supply of your product, you know how they're going to try and move that. They're going to bid on your branded terms on your SERP, (laughs) right? And so what we've seen is actual branded CPCs rise in price over the last nine months in ways that brands are forced to play defense on their own terms against their own online retailers who are now more desperate than ever to try and move the inventory. And guess what? If they want to just move your inventory, they have more marginal dollar to do it because they're not spending any money on the top of funnel demand creation. So their cost of acquisition is just purely on your branded terminology. They have actual more margin to play with than you do, who's also paying for the Facebook ads that are driving the demand on it. So you're in a losing battle there too. And so we're seeing more of that where the problem with Google is ultimately it always just is an environment that gets competed away to the highest bidder who's willing to push out the value capture further and further and further. And usually that's the bigger players. And so that just eventually that channel gets deteriorated too. So it's just never the growth lever that somebody's like, I'm going to build my business and it's going to grow next year on the back of search. Like that's just not, not a paid environment. Unless you get these moments of arbitrage where for two months, Facebook math or Facebook or masks had a massive outsized amount of search volume versus competition. It's a perfectly capitalistic market. All of that eventually gets competed down to zero. But there are a lot of people that do that, right? They just chase those short-term arbitrage opportunities on e-com. A lot of successful, like solopreneur Sophisticated people. people, They're good at it. Yep. Exactly. That's like, if you go on YouTube and you search for like, how to do Facebook ads or whatever. You see all those, it's some guy. The drop like, shippers and yeah. yeah, exactly. And he's like, oh, look, you know, I just, I do these keyword searches and I find something that looks like there's not, and I just blow it out and- For two weeks and then it's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, he's got scales and like post office equipment in, in the background. <laughs> yeah, that's super fascinating. So, I mean, I want to kind of, let me just read back to you what you just said, because I think it's a fascinating dynamic. So you've got a brand 
that invests heavily in brand equity. And you've got basically a reseller of that brand that can yep. capture that last click. And that could be totally CAC LTV efficient for them because they're not carrying the weight of actually building the brand equity, right? It's almost exactly like right. you know Google allows that reseller or whatever to weaponize the brand equity, use it against the brand. And then the brand is like not really incentivized to invest there because, well, why should they? They're not really capitalizing on that because the last click attribution methodology just eats up all the opportunity on the um, on the search side. And this is what retailers started doing is they started getting really smart by going, oh, you want us to take your product? Well, we don't really want inventory risk. So we'll put you on online only with a dropship model and we'll see how that goes. And then what they're doing is they're telling you, we have 2 million unique visits to Nordstrom's.com. And the reality is, yeah, to Nordstrom's homepage, not to my PDP. I get zero traffic to the PDP on Nordstrom's.com forward slash my brand name. And all you're going to do is you're going to insert yourself onto my search engine results page on my branded terms and siphon the margin off of the demand I create. Like that's a bad relationship. But retailers got smart about this. And because they have cachet and it sounds cool to entrepreneurs to be in Nordstrom's, they take that deal and then they just deteriorate their own demand and put a hole in their own funnel, basically. Oh man. Okay. Talk to me about TikTok. How important is TikTok to DTC and, and how has that changed over the last 12 months? I mean, I think what people are fascinated by with TikTok is it's a magic organic impression machine where there is no other place that you could put a video up and suddenly get 5 million views overnight unexpectedly on a piece of content. And so TikTok has done a marvelous job of building engagement and virality into organic content creation. And they have some of the best content creators in the world and the platform is intoxicating. The problem is none of that is the same as driving a direct response advertising platform that produces marginally accretive acquisition. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. not the same thing. And they right. just, it doesn't do that because the, so what people so underestimate about Facebook is that Facebook has had a pixel sitting on every website on the internet for 10 years, tracking right. every purchase that happens. Right. And so you just can't make up that level of specificity about consumer behavior and targeting. And their ad product is just so far advanced. And just the, the ad environment, the ad products and how native they are, like it's not there yet. Now, does that mean it won't get there? I don't know. I'm not going to say that. But I just know that for now, every dollar spent outside of Facebook into another platform is still an opportunity cost for a brand. Right. What do you think about this idea that TikTok's not a DR platform? I think there's a misconception there as well. I mean, they've got a pixel. They've got a Capy. They've got a conversions API. I've been working on this piece where I just try to estimate the Basically, the idea was I wanted to estimate or provide some kind of like rough estimate of the breakdown across brand and DR for, you know, the sort of largest ad platforms. The problem there is you can't really say brand versus DR. So it's really like DR versus non-DR, which is like very non-specific and broad. Um, Anyway, so in this estimate, right, I have TikTok at like 50-50. My sense is that that's roughly right. Maybe it's a little even higher on the DR side, but like, I believe there's like generally this misconception in the advertising space that, D- that TikTok's all brand. And that's just like demonstrably not true. Based, first of all, just based on the tools that they offer, of course it's DR, right. they have the DR tools. But second, like, I mean, I see companies running DR spend there and I imagine those aren't the only ones, right? There's probably more if, you know, if you're seeing that many, if I see that many. So like, yeah. just talk to me about that. I mean, that's a, that's a misconception. Yeah. Well, I think the question is, is it a, misconception or a narrative that with driven 
with by with intent. <laughs> I think the ad platform wants to be whatever works for that advertiser. And so I think the danger for any of these platforms to sort of put on the DR identity is that if it doesn't work, they're held to a really high standard and the dollars move quick. Right. And so I think for TikTok, the question is, and even if you interact with their sales teams, the language and the narrative, and I remember a year and a half ago, this was Snapchat. Snapchat came in hard after direct response dollars. Then all yeah. of a sudden, about six months later, that sales pitch completely stopped and it was all brand awareness. This is yeah. your brand awareness platform. And so the question is, I think everyone knows that DR dollars are prevalent and they scale because if they work, people spend more money. And so if you can mm-hmm. crack it, it's a really powerful driver. Whereas a brand awareness budget tends to be a more fixed allocation of capital. It's like, right. here's my budget for the month. I spend this much. So I think there's a there's a sort of prize to be won if you can capture the DR dollars. And so everyone has interest in it. But and what I'll say is that our industry is trying to make TikTok a DR platform. And, yeah. the, the, and TikTok is selling it to us as if it has the potential to be that. But they're also sort of like, yeah, but you got to try it and you got to think about it differently. And it's like, there's a lot of caveats around whether or not it can actually accomplish the objective. Yeah, I think, I guess one of the frustrating aspects of, of watching the, the sort of Twitter saga unfold, you know, from, from sidelines is that, you know, this idea of going and, and having a phone call in hat in hand with advertising like that's so foreign to me as a dr advertiser right you don't need to do that you know if your platform works i'll pay you i don't have any qualms i mean that's not to say look i'm not going to go run ads on parlor right there's general brand safety concerns there's extremes here there's extreme you know ends of the spectrum but if the platform works there's no phone call we just well you know stick with us through this transition period like no it, it works or it doesn't and that's, that's right. what dictates that's right. my ad spend. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is, I and mean, I've seen this, I've seen this firsthand, is like brand budget gets set at the Q3 the year before. And it's you've got this much money. And that old joke, you know, the 55th, I don't know which half joke. I think what people hear that joke and they think like, well, those, you know, those marketers are so stupid. Well, no, but that's the <laughs> point. It's I wouldn't want to be a brand marketer and I'd feel odd about allocating money that way. But the thing is, yeah, if I know that 50% works and it works and it, it meets my standards and the measurement is not really, it's not, it's not possible just given the signals you get with brand ad spend. But I know that, look, it's demonstrably true. My model tells me if I would cut the brand spend to zero, my sales would go down and they would go down at a, to a greater degree than the brand spend would save me money on the expense uh, side. And so I should keep spending it. And no, I don't know which channels work the best, but my model doesn't take that into account anyway. It says dollars in, dollars out. And so I, I'm sort of allowed to, I have the agency within is my role as like, you know, VP of brand marketing to allocate those dollars however I want. And, you know, within that billion dollars of brand budget for the year, if I ratchet up channel A by 10 million, because they took me to the Super Bowl. Or they took me to the VIP box at a Taylor Swift concert. They're going to get that little extra ten million, you know, on top of the two hundred that's already allocated to them, and that's not going to make a real substantive difference in the overall performance. Now, you could say, why would you ever want to operate that way? Don't isn't doesn't that make you anxious? Um, not knowing, you know, the the direct attribution, the direct contribution of every single dollar that you deploy. And yes, I would say yes, it does. But I'm a performance marketer, and that's my that's sort right. of natural sensibility. 
But there are people that can deal with that ambiguity. And the fact of the matter is, if they cut the brand spend to zero, and you know companies do this exercise, and there is science behind all this, it's just that when you're operating in like a brand environment, there's no way to sort of trace and allocate the, and attribute the dollars from the moment of ad spend to like the eventual conversion that might take place a year later by some guy in North Dakota, right? Because he saw a commercial six months before. And so the thing is, yeah, maybe only 50% works, but if you cut the whole thing, you'd be losing more money than you're saving. That's right. Um, but that's the crux of those conversations. Like Elon, you don't treat us right. We can take that money and allocate it elsewhere. And we can cut a lot of it away because we know we just have to kind of reach people and we can reach people with a lot of different mechanisms. And you're not going to take me to the Super Bowl. You're not going to take me to the box at the Taylor Swift concert. You're going to insult me on Twitter. Well, then we're going to cut our spend and we're going to push it into linear TV or CTV or Netflix's new ads offering. And it doesn't matter how that works on a dollar to dollar basis. We just know if we cut it off in totality, we'd be losing more money than we're saving. And that's what you see play out. And I think Elon didn't really appreciate that going into it. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's got a bigger vision. I don't know. But like on the DR side, that wouldn't happen. There's no call that needs to happen to beg people or to flatter them. It's like, hey, the platform works. I better maximize it. I better exploit it to the max possible extent. That's right. And I, I think there's such a journey that I would say every marketer goes on in their career wrestling with the exact things that you just described, which is that we all want there to be a perfect ad solution to attribution. And so we all go down that rabbit hole. I know I did early in my career deep trying to find out a way to answer every question about every dollar. And then you begin to accept the reality that that's not how it works. And you learn to live in that ambiguity. Then you begin this path that you wish every marketing dollar was allocated against And the part of the organization got the money based on their ability to prove the return and that there was nothing political and nothing relational and there wasn't any general and that that's not true. And you learn to understand that and you begin to think through each of these pieces differently and that there is art and science here and that there is an ability to drive an understanding of who your business is. My kids the other day, I was sitting at dinner with them. I have three little kids, twin boys that are eight, daughter that's five. They live on YouTube. And if I ask them, I say, what's your favorite ads? You know what brand they can tell me more than any other in the world? It's State Farm. They know State Farm. (laughs) It's a freaking insurance company, but they can tell me exactly who they are and what they sell because they advertise the crap out of top of funnel, branded commercials with no call to action for an eight-year-old, but they're in their head. And they know that the job of their business is to be at some point when every human has to make a decision about insurance, how deep is that worm that they've embedded in your brain? And that shit matters. It really does. Taylor, I wish we had another hour. This is a fascinating conversation. I'll have to have you back on the on the podcast. Please let people know where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you, how they can employ your agency to deploy their ad dollars. Yeah, well, first, I would love for you to join Eric and I on the front lines of the Twitter battle fighting the whole internet. So I'm at Taylor Holiday on Twitter. And then if you want to talk to us about business, commonthreadco.com is the best place to do it. So hope to see you uh, on the front lines. All right, Taylor, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your flexibility. Appreciate your insights. And I wish you a pleasant Monday evening. All right, buddy. Take care. Take care.